geholfen haben. The director, and it's my pleasure to uh, host this meeting uh, here today on a post-Brexit agreement for research and innovation. So this week is obviously Brexit week. Um, as you all know, we uh, um, think uh, there is a lot of things that will be discussed this week and of course will be discussed in the coming months. Um, and the focus, in a sense, is now shifting uh, away from um, looking at um, the Brexit itself, uh, but rather looking at the future relationship between the EU and the United Kingdom. And um, to uh, support um, reflections on this future relation, uh, Bruegel has um, decided to had decided to to do a joint project with Welcome Trust, um, which is um, based in the UK, um, and has supported um, this project also financially. And what we we've done in the last uh, couple of months is we have actually uh, done a, um, a simulation negotiation, a simulated negotiation for a post-Brexit agreement on research and innovation. So this is quite an innovation in the sense that um, the, the, the report that you have now in front of you is not uh, a report that was written um, just in front of a computer sitting and doing some, uh, some background research. It is really uh, a report that summarizes uh, an actual negotiation process of two teams, um, one from the UK, one from the EU, on the future science and research um, and innovation um, uh, relationship. And uh, I think as um, we will hear in a few minutes, uh, I think this process actually revealed that um, it's not, not that trivial to come to a close relation and to come to an agreement um, very easily. I mean, there's many, many pitfalls in these kind of negotiations. And I think um, part of the sort of the value of this project has really been about understanding the project and understanding the difficulty of uh, negotiations um, on the future relation. Uh, I guess it's also a sign that um, it might be optimistic, it might be difficult uh, to, um, to reach a, a full-blown and um, comprehensive agreement on the future relation uh, between the EU and the UK in the next uh, 11 months. Uh, I think there's a lot of optimism here um, if we think we can achieve that. Um, uh, and I guess what this report shows that even in a small dimension such as research and innovation, there's lots of things one has to, uh, has to take into account. I'm particularly grateful today to um, the, the lead uh, authors, the lead um, uh, people that led this project. Um, uh, first, uh, Sir Michael Lee um, is um, a professor at the uh, Johns Hopkins University in, uh, in Bologna, and um, he has been the negotiation facilitator, so he's been negotiating and making sure that the negotiations actually lead uh, to some outcome. And I would like to thank uh, Beth uh, Thompson from the UK. She, she has led the UK team. And Reinhilde Voigler, unfortunately, couldn't make it today. Reinhilde Voigler is a senior fellow at Bruegel, and she has led um, the EU team. And then there's been lots of people on both sides of the channel providing input into this project, and I really would like to, to thank them as well. Um, uh, I think I covered, uh, covered it all. I want to thank, of course, all the project managers, Scarlett Varga, uh, Pauline Chitai, um, and uh, on the UK side, um, 
Martin Smith and Simon Hall for uh, making sure that um, this project actually became a reality. And um, I think we will hear first um, the presentation of the project by Sir Michael, then a keynote speech by Jaroslav Pietras, Director General um, at the Council of the European Union. And following that, we will have a panel discussion and let me uh, announce that in the panel discussion, uh, we are grateful that uh, Gina Dowding um, uh, agreed to participate. I think um, uh, very last minute you, you agreed to jump in. We had Philip Lamberts um, uh, um, uh, um, first in the program, and unfortunately he couldn't make it anymore, so it's great to have you today also. Thank you very much for coming, and of course, um, uh, Claire Moody, uh, former member of the European Parliament, um, will also participate, and André Sapir, senior fellow at Bruegel, uh, will participate in that panel debate, and he's been also uh, interacting um, on this project and participating on this project. So thank you all for um, making this project happen. Um, it's an awkward week uh, for Europe. It's an important week because the EU leaves um, the... Um, uh, EU institutions, it doesn't leave the single market yet, but it leaves the EU institutions as of 1st of February. Um, and um, we don't know yet how it will look like in 11 months. Um, part of the relation is also about research and development and science and innovation, where we all typically would benefit from working together. But how much we can work together um, depends on um, negotiation. And um, Sir Michael, I think, will introduce us uh, to the outcome of this negotiation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Guntram. Thanks for organizing this very interesting uh, initiative and for your invitation to me to facilitate uh, the exercise. Thanks to everyone for coming here on a rather difficult day. Um, I'm spending a lot of my time in, in Bologna, where you know uh, the political movement that's had quite an influence on the outcome of the election in Emilia-Romagna is known as the Sardines. I can tell you I felt like that on the tram on Avenue Louise this morning. I know what it feels like to be a sardine. <laughs> Um, so thanks very much, despite these difficulties, for being here uh, this morning. I would just add one um, piece of information to what Guntram uh, presented, and that is that our keynote address um, uh, by Jaroslav Pietras will be heard both here uh, and in London. So at the end of this presentation, short presentation that I'll be giving, we'll connect to the Wellcome Trust in London, and the next item on the agenda will be in common uh, with uh, uh, an audience in London. As you've heard, today we are launching the report of a simulated negotiation between the UK and the EU for an agreement on cooperation on science, innovation and research after Brexit. This project, as you've gathered, was run by Bruegel, and the Wellcome Trust in London. In working together on this project, the organizers sought to find ways to preserve the benefits from such cooperation after Brexit. Just to say a few words about these benefits, which have been felt across a wide range of fields, including cancer treatment and food security, 
as well as safe, clean and efficient energy and a range of other fields that have been supported through Horizon 2020 and which will evolve under the future Horizon Europe. Such cooperation is also widely seen as strengthening our economic competitiveness at a time when research and technology are powering ahead across the globe. Indeed, science cooperation is generally viewed as a win-win process for, for the UK and its EU partners, as can be seen through a few basic figures. The UK's top 10 research partner countries are in Europe. Similarly, the UK is a significant research partner for many EU countries, so the benefits really are reciprocal. For example, co-authored papers with UK-based authors represent more than 10% of the research output of the Netherlands, Sweden, Belgium, Denmark and Ireland. So there really are um, concrete benefits from working together. In Horizon 2020, the EU's current framework programme for research and innovation, the UK is one of the top five research partners for almost every member state. So there are significant mutual interests at stake in finding ways to continue cooperation after Brexit. Our simulation involved a negotiation taking place after Brexit. It was projected into the future with a scenario which assumed, correctly as it turned out, that the UK would have left early in 2020 on the basis of a withdrawal agreement, something which was far from certain when the project was launched. It was intended to produce an agreement on continued science cooperation through association of the UK after Brexit with the EU's next framework programme, Horizon Europe, that is expected to start in January next year. The exercise drew on techniques developed through simulations held in academic settings in recent years. It was the fourth uh, such simulation that I've been involved with personally, and it drew on the lessons of a number of earlier simulations on related but different subjects. To some degree, it reflected real-world negotiations in seeking a balanced agreement in which both sides, acting on the basis of mutual interests, moved beyond their initial red lines to reach compromise solutions. The negotiators followed the well-known principle, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So there was a complex process in which concessions in one area were balanced against concessions by the other side in other areas. For practical reasons though, differing from the real world situation, the exercise was compressed into three relatively short negotiating sessions in Brussels and London and focused on a limited number of central controversial issues. So it didn't cover the whole range of science cooperation, but focused on the conditions necessary for the UK to be associated with Horizon Europe in the future, and in particular the thorny issues that that presented. <coughs> Certain important related matters, such as participation in the Erasmus programme or in Euratom, were not addressed in this process. The text, which is included in the report that's available to you this morning, takes the form of a classic EU agreement. And
and it's inspired by agreements with other countries providing for their association with the EU's framework programmes adapted to the particular circumstances of post-Brexit Britain and the EU. The text was reviewed by distinguished legal experts um, on both sides of the channel. It's put forward as a demonstration of what can be achieved with the necessary political will and in a spirit of compromise, rather than as a text which the organisers recommend for adoption in its present form. So it's cast in legal terms, it's been checked by legal experts, it takes the form of a classic EU agreement, but the purpose is not in saying, take this agreement lock, stock and barrel as the basis for the future, it's meant as a demonstration. And clearly in the real world, there'll be a complex negotiation bringing in other factors. So it's meant as a demonstration of what is, is feasible and possible with a necessary political will, not necessarily to be followed word by word. The simulation involved two negotiating teams representing the UK and the EU. As Guntram has said, the EU team was led by Reinhilde Vergelis, senior fellow here at Bruegel and professor at KU Leuven. The UK team was led by Beth Thompson, from whom we'll be hearing briefly shortly, head of UK and EU policy at the Wellcome Trust in London. The teams consisted of scientists, researchers, academics, science policy experts, former senior officials, and a member of the last European Parliament, Claire Moody, who is here with us this morning. Participants took responsibility for different issue areas in the negotiations, but they did not simulate or mimic the role of specific real-world actors. So there was nobody playing the role of the European Commissioner or of a British minister. They were playing functional roles dealing with specific <coughs> issue areas in the negotiations. The report that is available to you sets out in detail how the simulation was run and we can perhaps come to some of these issues in the panel discussion uh, subsequently. Many difficult issues were addressed in the course of the negotiation. To begin with, the very principle of association itself as distinct from more limited third country participation. This was an issue that was not self-evident at the beginning of the negotiations. The UK's financial contribution obviously also gave rise to complex discussions. Other issues that were the focus of the negotiations included data protection, technical standards, the decision-making process that would apply to um, the future participation of the UK in the framework programme, the question of the mobility of scientists and their families, as well as the rights of family members to work when they accompany um, a, a, a participant, a beneficiary uh, of a grant, and the dispute settlement uh, process, all of which you can see touched on red lines that have been established publicly uh, by both sides in discussions until now. The negotiators took their roles seriously and were tough on issues where they knew that there were certain uh, political uh, constraints. At the same time, one must acknowledge, as most of the negotiators 
were with a scientific background, they were researchers, they were science policy people, they were of course disposed to reach an agreement, which they did in the course of three negotiating rounds. The project delivers a number of messages. The main takeaway is that continued cooperation between the UK and the EU on science, research and innovation is both desirable and feasible. The obstacles to the conclusion of an agreement in this vital field can be overcome with political vision and a spirit of compromise. The issue needs to be addressed early in the forthcoming UKE negotiations in order not to lose continuity in these vital fields. There was considerable concern of the risk that if um, the basis for the UK's participation in Horizon Europe had not been clarified, if not finalised, by, by the end of the transition period and by the time that Horizon Europe uh, becomes effective in January next year, um, a gap could appear and lost habits of um, cooperation could then mean um, a further decline in the number of cooperative projects. I must say I've discussed this point to some extent subsequently and have received some reassurance in the sense that it's not expected that the first calls for Horizon Europe will be made until quite late in 2021. So that there will be a little more time than simply the end of this year before these issues need to be resolved and a solid basis found for the EU's future participation. Clearly, a simulation, however realistic in some respects and however instructive, is one thing, and real-world negotiations are another. In the real world, political leaders will want to see agreement on the EU's future budget. Um, the, the multi the, the multi-annual financial framework, the famous MFF, um, of which uh, Horizon Europe will be a part um, before signing off on a science agreement, however beneficial it may be. The preference shown by the negotiators in our exercise was for a standalone science agreement because uh, there was a concern that it would take a longer time uh, before the bigger picture is clear. In the real world, it seems relatively unlikely um, that the main actors will be ready to envisage a standalone agreement before there is clarification about the overall framework for future UK-EU relations. However, a break in continuity brings, uh, would bring a significant risk of um, erosion of Europe's competitiveness in science and research and its commercial application. Already the number of new European joint projects in involving the EU has fallen alarmingly. And for this reason, both sides felt an incentive to reach an agreement. I would conclude on, on a personal note and um, simply point out from my perspective that a no-deal Brexit at the end of the year uh, 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 or a minimal 
so-called thin deal uh, Brexit, which covers only limited aspects of trade in goods, with no provision for future cooperation on science and other crucial fields, would deliver a serious blow to economic competitiveness on both sides of the channel. My strong impression is that neither party at this stage wants such an outcome and will work to prevent it. And I'm confident that in the discussions that will get underway next year, there will be uh, a focus not only on the core provisions of a future agreement dealing with trade, but also um, a framework for cooperation uh, in this and other fields. As Brexit becomes a reality this Friday, we hope that the successful outcome of our simulation will encourage real-world negotiators to start work without delay and may even give them some useful pointers. Thank you very much. I look to Pauline. I think we'll have a very brief pause now and we'll collect, connect shortly with London. Is, is that the case, Pauline? Okay. Just a few moments' patience, please. we have a few moments, I mean, if you glance at the report, uh, the executive summary really brings out uh, the main points. Um, they're developed in much further detail later on, but if you read through the executive summary, you will get a strong sense of uh, the main points in, in, in the outcome of the negotiations. A few minutes, yes, I was told when I should finish by five two, so I mean, I'll finish a, a little bit early. Yeah, we want to finish a bit five minutes too. I'm a very obedient type I was taught that succinctness was the.
Good morning, Beth. Can you hear us? Not yet. They can't hear us in Brussels. Wonderful. Well, well, it's wonderful. It's um, wonderful. Um, wonderful to be with you, Brussels. Michael, thank you. Thank you for hosting this session um, and for your work, um, pulling, for your work pulling together the report with us. We're from the wonderful Francis Crick Institute in London, which is right next door to the, door to the, the Eurostar station. So we feel it's a very appropriate place to be. Over to you. Well, thank you very much, Beth. Well, thank you very much, well, thank you very much Our Beth. session this morning. Our session, our session, session presented the project in the project. Terms. Uh, we're looking forward to more detailed discussions uh, later in the day. We're going to begin. Michael, we have some problems, Michael, we have some problems hearing, you. hearing you. Okay, let's see whether okay, okay, technical support can re-establish the sound. Can you hear me now? Yes? I've lost you now. <laughs> this is the story of life, isn't it? <laughs> okay, fine. Well, I'm very happy to introduce um, Yaroslav Pietras, who is Director General in the Secretariat of the uh, Council of Ministers of the European Union here in Brussels and who is going to share with us um, his somewhat broader reflections um, to get us going in our discussions this morning. So Yaroslav, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Michael. Uh, I have been asked uh, uh, earlier and also this morning by Michael to give a kind of a reality check. And to give a reality check, I have to be sure that uh, I'm on a safe side. And I'm quite reassured and feel safer when colleagues, uh, are, uh, some of them, are in London, not in an immediate proximity. <laughs> because uh, then I could tell a bit more freely what uh, could be a, a reality check. The first thing that I have to make is obviously a reservation. I'm uh, dealing with ministers for education, uh, for energy, transport, number of ministers uh, meeting in a council to decide on issues. However, the issue of Brexit has been taken out of the sectoral ministers for a very good reasons, because we are all facing kind of a psychological shock. It means we think, uh, Things until now were so good, why to change it? And whereas things are going to change. Therefore, the negotiations has been taken to a special group and also are taken not by sectoral ministers, but uh, by foreign ministers, by Sherpas, by heads of state uh, and uh, their collaborators. So it's a totally different stream. And they even are separated uh, from the rest of the council secretariat uh, by the doors which are locked uh, 
on uh, secure uh, elements of uh, uh, dealing with papers and so on. Even, uh, as you perfectly know, everything which is confidential is of a great interest and therefore is much easier uh, circulated. So I know a bit about what is being discussed over there. But if you think that you could give me the text of the agreement and I will put it into practice, it's a wrong address. It's not me that will deal with the text uh, afterwards. However, obviously with the knowledge, with the observation that I have, probably I could give you some uh, assessment uh, where there is a bit more problem and where is uh, less problem. Anyhow, everything is within the context of the larger process and it has to be understood uh, this way. And we are speaking about a specific uh, 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 segment of our relationships where uh, the both sides can benefit from collaboration, uh, but it also is a segment which is very important uh, in various terms, not only contribution to science and development, not only to competitiveness of uh, uh, any economy in Europe, but also it is sizable in terms of uh, money involved. And when you look at uh, the overall budget uh, for uh, uh, development of uh, innovations and research, uh, these are a uh, large part of the European budget. And if you look at what, e, what uh, uh, was the contribution from the EU budget to uh, British uh, uh, project uh, under this uh, existing uh, still uh, uh, Horizon 2020, it is in billions, it is around six billion. So it, it is not a negligible amount of money. And therefore, I think uh, it is right to look at uh, this process, also uh, to see how these important elements can be arranged uh, after, uh, after Brexit. But this is not something which is uh, a small. It is a sizable uh, component of our future uh, uh, relationships. Uh, so uh, I think uh, uh, with the Brexit, which is uh, now approaching in terms of ours, we have to have imagination, we have to have a determination, but also see what is a possibility to find arrangements for our future relationships, because it relates to a significant, very important components of our cooperation. However, uh, from a process point of view, it has always been taken in a larger context. So there will be a political context uh, related to uh, to uh, uh, agreement in area which looks, uh, uh, which is very dear to, I think, to all of uh, those who are here and also all uh, who are those over there. But these elements are in the context uh, of other problems, also conflicting, where the understanding is maybe a bit less clear. And therefore, one has to see to which extent it can be a standalone uh, uh, project or agreement. And here, uh, uh, Michael has said uh, uh, that it is difficult to imagine that in the real world, it can be so evidently assured that uh, it will be a standalone project. Even if it would be a standalone agreement, it always be discussed in the context of other problems. So. Uh, it doesn't, uh, it's not a question of a form, it's a question of a context which will be uh, 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 very important.
Uh, one also have to see that uh, for both sides, there's an, the elements uh, which are uh, uh, important in terms, not only on number of projects or in terms of money, but also people involved. And first, maybe it's always good look to the figures and the figures of uh, 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 how, much, how many projects has been put forward, how, many, uh, how much money has been spent and engaged from both sides. And how many people are working on both sides? I mean, as I read in a, uh, recent data, uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, academia in UK, there are around 14% uh, on uh, non-UK EU citizens working. So it is a sizable uh, amount of cooperation until now, and these elements will obviously uh, affect it. There is a, another element, uh, another aspect. Uh, uh, we are discussing here research and innovation, but research and innovation is not only Horizon uh, 2020 or Horizon Europe. There are more initiatives. And obviously, once you discuss this issue, you have to look at other forms of cooperation or other places where both EU and uh, UK money, researchers, institutions are being engaged. And here, for example, we've got some other things like uh, Galileo, uh, where uh, there is, in, which is based on a different uh, legal basis. There are a number of other uh, projects uh, uh, which are either financed by uh, Horizon Money or they are established uh, uh, separately. And they, they, they deal with many collaborative projects uh, which go beyond uh, EU uh, member states. So like, uh, or, uh, like Galileo, for example, or Joint Research Center. So therefore, one has to look not only at the standalone project dealing with uh, Horizon uh, Europe, for next year, but has to look what will be the repercussions, what will be the impact, what would be the example that will be taken when discussing participation in these other elements. Uh, I think uh, uh, we are all uh, taken by desire to continue like it was. However, things will be different. And then you have to have a bit of imagination how it can be uh, different. Uh, and uh, I sense few elements of problems uh, in uh, various uh, uh, contexts. Let us go of uh, some uh, as, as uh, in, a, in a report is being also uh, enumerated. When you look at the formal framework, uh, it is very difficult, as I already have said, it's very difficult to imagine uh, uh, participation in this area without having uh, uh, a proper framework for everything uh, or that relates to our bilateral uh, relationships. So uh, it is a question whether this will be finished by end of this year, because then there is a chance that we will also finish by addressing the issues uh, related to innovation and research. But what happens if our future relationships are not finished? Michael has been saying, what happens if there is only few uh, elements of a trade uh, or tariffs and a small uh, and the, uh, moving uh, goods across the frontiers? And if many other things are not uh, uh, settled, are not uh, properly arranged, formally established, then it will be a bit more difficult to see that we will come quickly to, the, to this issue. 
so it is, uh, you, you, even if you look at the goods, if goods cannot uh, circulate uh, freely, then you've got a problem of research, which very often has got a format uh, in a final stage uh, of uh, things that have to flow between uh, the countries. Even for research, you need very often equipment that you move uh, that way or another way, and this, uh, 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 this will maybe affect. So here, for formal framework, I see in real life, as a real life, a bit of uh, danger that we will not be uh, it would be much better to have uh, everything at once by uh, the foreseen date, and then it would be uh, ensured. Then there's a question of financial contribution. Uh, so we have to go from a current system to a new one. But the new one, what is a new one? Uh, I mean, when you are a negotiator, what you do, uh, and I'm not negotiator here, so uh, please do not take my words as someone that is negotiating. But what you do, you look at the examples of similar situations. And here we've got two examples of associated countries or uh, third countries. And there has been some precedences how it was organized. Obviously, you could be innovative. You could find another form. However, this another form will immediately become a standard. So negotiators will look what is the implication, not for EU-UK relationships, but for any, uh, anyone else in being involved. And then uh, it is, uh, one has to also see that in the context of money, uh, it is a larger context. Uh, spending public money in Europe is always a difficult issue. Uh, Michael has mentioned uh, financial perspective. Uh, I have been involved in negotiating uh, 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 some of them, at least one uh, very fully, with a British uh, that have finalized it, and uh, it was a British presidency that have finalized this one. And I understand how difficult it is and what are the motives for establishing certain figures. And when you look at the money which are devoted to research and innovation, they have not been taken out of blue. They have been taken, taken into consideration other elements. For example, that uh, the countries which are net contributors, they've got a little chance to recuperate some of the money, and therefore uh, you create a programs which by definition allows, provide a chance to these countries to get uh, in, engaged with the EU budget in a considerable manner. So you see that the money for research and innovation have been also in this context, context of large contributors. Uh, it's totally different context than when you look at the, someone who is a associated or a third party. It's a different uh, considerations. And then uh, when you look at the current uh, perspective, I think leaders will look how this should be constructed. They obviously will look where money should go. They will look at the topics and issues that they want to spend, they will have to spend money on some issues, even they don't uh, uh, not really like uh, continuing spending on it. But this also will be under consideration. So, and the contributions will be also looked upon from this point of view. So, I think here there is a bit more additional complications because finances here cannot be agreed before EU is making mind on the internal budget, but also 
for EU is looking how new relationships and new principles will uh, play in the uh, uh, in a system. And you have to also uh, see what is the perception. Uh, the perception of the UK take from the uh, horizon 2020, from the research program, was always seen in a net pair position of uh, UK. So I cannot imagine that here uh, it would be seen a bit differently. It means I cannot imagine that the UK will contribute less than uh, uh, it benefits. Uh, well, when you look into data, uh, when you look into the, uh, what associated countries are contributing, they have contributed from the data they have found, it was 6.9%. Uh, so it is a smaller uh, size. But they have benefited 6.6%. So it means that they contributed more than they have benefited. Uh, when you look at the third uh, countries, uh, uh, they have contributed 1.9% uh, and they have benefited 06 in financial flows. I think the benefits are obviously much greater. Benefits relates to achievements that you could have and involvement, uh, interaction between uh, researchers, uh, uh, dissemination of uh, innovation and so on. But in financial terms, this is something that uh, uh, will be taken uh, uh, into account. The third uh, element uh, which I uh, sense a bit difficult is a, a decision-making process. You've got uh, uh, EU and uh, associated countries and uh, uh, third parties. So decision-making uh, uh, process is, uh, is not only voting. Uh, I'm, uh, oh, I'm uh, quite many years working for the council and voting at the council is very seldom. We have uh, uh, on, our, uh, uh, on our tablets a special voting calculator, which when you put countries, uh, it gives you whether there is a majority or there is no majority. This is being used by me frequently, but it's never being told. It means you work trying to get a consensus, and you know that if there is a majority, overwhelming majority, then the decision can be easily taken. So very seldom in a room, you've got a discussion about the voting. Uh, and here, there is a much more difficult element. Uh, are countries who are associated, or third parties, or UK in this case, are able to take part in whole the debate leading to decision-making, and just not taking part in decision-making, if there is no moment uh, that is clear for decision-making, it creates a bit of uh, uh, a, a feeling you, have, you are exactly like everyone else in the decision-making process. Because decision-making process is not uh, only about uh, uh, participating in voting, but is participating in a discussion, participating in uh, uh, evaluation, participating in uh, uh, side meetings, networking, all those things contribute to taking decisions. And here you've got another element, uh, which I would say in a certain uh, manner can be uh, helpful to say, okay, this is something that we have to take into account. Uh, if you say in a current uh, horizon, the Associated countries have contributed 
above 6% of the budget. If you would imagine that a similar position would be by UK, the contribution of the associated countries is much larger. And then the question uh, appears, well, with a large participation of uh, associated countries, you have to find also ways how this is being, uh, uh, how this is being taken in the decision-making uh, process. It doesn't mean that you give a voting rights, but it is uh, a way how to compensate for the fact that you contribute substantially to the budget and you are still associated uh, uh, countries. So I think, again, this is a quite complex issue. Probably reality check is uh, more difficult. Then movement of research and the families. I think uh, here there is a problem that has been also uh, very well described in a, a report, that it depends on the legislation which would be in place in the UK. And I can imagine that this legislation in place, it would be much easier if there is an overall legislation, uh, sorry, overall agreement reached on the movement of, uh, of people and the status of those who are already over there. And if this is being agreed, then I can imagine that it is much easier for UK authorities to come with a legislation which would regulate this specific aspect. So here, I think it's difficult to see how this is uh, uh, how this would be solved without uh, overall uh, uh, understanding, uh, at least, or if not agreement. Then the uh, um, issue which uh, is uh, by far more difficult than people tend to think is a question of regulatory uh, or, or standard regulation, regula uh, standards and regulatory uh, adequacy. Uh, at the beginning, it might not be so difficult problem. Why? Because we are not diverging in standards, we are not diverging in uh, uh, various regulatory uh, uh, approaches to research, but also to industrial uh, production. Because if innovations are being put into practice, then have to lead to something which is, for example, accepted uh, in uh, everywhere. If you are making research using uh, materials or technologies which are forbidden in other parts, uh, you wonder why you should uh, finance that uh, from the common, uh, uh, the common project, because it will not be applied in one or the other uh, part. So for the beginning, it probably is not a big issue and can be easily or uh, not fully understood. But with, in the long run, it would be a, a, a much more significant issue. And again, without uh, overall agreement here, it might be difficult to imagine that uh, uh, this kind of adequacy would, uh, 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 would not be taken into account. So I think uh, here, uh, uh, this norm, standards, level of protection of consumers, uh, uh, level of protection of uh, environment, all these elements will play a role. And uh, including, and that's another point that uh, is uh, uh, somehow uh, well uh, elaborated in a, uh, in a report, is uh, uh, the data protection. Because uh, when you look at uh, what happens in innovation, many of these innovations relate to digital economy, to digital part, where data is a new oil. And when you've got a data, and the question of adequacy of data protection, and this would allow 
for a free movement of data. Without that, we will have a difficulty to have a uh, movement of data. So here again, there might be uh, uh, some, uh, some, some problems and also relationship to overall agreement. The final uh, question about the process is what is about the process? It means how it can be arrived. And I think uh, uh, if it would depend on the people who were on the project uh, negotiating and so on, I think we could arrive it very quickly and very successfully. Generally, if this would be done by the people who are responsible for these issues, uh, either in the Commission, in the country, in the Parliament, this would be also done quite quickly. The process, however, will be a political. And we could have a, uh, a totally different, uh, uh, or, uh, somehow, phase or uh, some uh, uh, dynamics of the overall negotiations. We could arrive at a compromise when everything is agreed. But before, there might be a number of tensions, and then it will be difficult to find agreement. Uh, the, the, the major problem is that uh, when I was reading this project, I have found plenty of collaborative approaches. So the approach by, applied by both sides was to collaborate, to find a way how to cope with a difficult issue. It means we have been sympathetic to each other. And then, uh, because there is an understanding of commonality and mutuality of interests. However, the political process overall can also be a bit of confrontational. There are moments that might be uh, types imposed on uh, uh, products uh, which are punitive, or there might be some other things. Obviously, I would uh, uh, like to see that whole the process is much more collaborative, that we arrive at uh, the outcome which is beneficial for both sides. But how we arrived, uh, it's also uh, quite, uh, quite important. And uh, I, I have uh, found a quotation uh, uh, from uh, someone uh, uh, saying what, is the, uh, what should be the outcome. And because this person has got a lot of influence on the process, when he was saying that it should be singing and dancing uh, flow of goods, I think it should be not limited only to goods, but also to uh, all the elements related to research and innovation. I think we have uh, two questions for Sin. Uh, two from London. Uh, I, I think we have two questions for Sin now from London, and two questions uh, to be posed here in Brussels. Are we set uh, from a technical yes, point uh, of view? Yes, uh, from, yeah. the from London. Yeah. Yeah. Let's begin with any questions. Let's begin with, let's begin with any questions. Is there anyone in the audience here? Is there anyone in the audience here? Is there anyone in the audience here? Anyone in the audience here? Anyone in the audience here? Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, please. 
thank you very much. Thomas Jorgensen from the European University Association. Um, I, I, I think this, this was a very interesting thing to glance through this, this morning. And uh, the whole idea about a research agreement and what you say is going to latch on to so many other processes. But my question is, is a research agreement on the table? To my knowledge, what is on the table is the general principle for UK participation in EU programs. And that's basically what's on the table for the next months. Implicitly in that is that there should be associations to EU programs, because otherwise, why would you have the general principles? And those general principles might and would have some amount of reciprocity. But the holistic research agreement is something that, that was on the British table some time ago. I haven't heard about it for a long time. And I actually haven't heard about it from the EU side, but I might be wrong here. I think you are right to put uh, the, this, uh, this element uh, on the table because this project is somehow to contribute to thinking that you, don't, you need not only a very small sized approach to participation of the UK, you need something more because otherwise many ties will be interrupted uh, by uh, producing this report, including uh, the text of the agreement, you provide with the answers to questions. You provide first the questions and the answers to questions. And it's up to negotiators to pick, it, to pick them up. I'm, I said at the beginning, I'm not a negotiator here. Uh, I look at the, what is uh, possible, what is not possible. Having an agreement within the whole system requires a approach which involves all the elements. And for the time being, uh, we are trying to define the framework for the whole. And what I have seen is that uh, there is a thinking about addressing all the issues. The form it will be addressed might be a bit different, but the issue of research and innovation is a question for the negotiations. What is the form that it will be uh, finalized, I cannot tell you and I don't know, because it depends on negotiators, what they will think uh, attractive to, to solve. But the, the issue of research and innovation participation is obviously among the elements that have been discussed by the working party that deals with that. So it's a question of a form and the content. I'm one of the guides in the House of European History. I was interested in your numbers about third countries. Contribution 1.9, benefit 0.6. Do you agree that it will be very difficult for the United Kingdom to agree to such a model? Oh, but uh, I have said about associated countries as well. Uh, and then associated countries, it is... Uh, or uh, 6.9 versus 6.6. 6. 
So the difference is just minimal. And when you look at the report, it says something which is uh, very uh, clear. Uh, it is related to the uh, uh, result, past results, uh, past uh, uh, outcome of the, of the uh, UK uh, re receipts. And the contributions are also to make up additional administrative costs, which might be uh, uh, somehow added to that. So I cannot imagine, therefore, that uh, the contributions uh, by the UK could be smaller than the benefits uh, that UK had. If this is not imaginable for the UK, that would be uh, probably the end of the discussion. However, the proportions for the, uh, for the third countries is something different because you are talking about small amounts and small projects and then the outcome may be different in different years and also there is a benefit of being linked to larger projects where you contribute a lot but you gain in a non-financial terms what we are speaking here is just a pure financial terms whereas for third parties sometimes these non-financial benefits are far more greater. Shall we see now whether we are able to take questions from the audience? Hello, I think we're back to London. Can you hear us in Brussels? Yes, Beth. Um, yes, Beth. Uh, do you have some questions in London? Some questions. Some questions. We do. Thank you. We very do. Much thank you very much for your keynote talk. For your that, keynote was talk. that was fascinating. I'm going to combine, going to combine some, of some, of some, of some, some of the questions we have here into just one question before, before we move on to the panel. So we've so seen the, the, um, the EU task force slides, um, which suggest, um, which suggest there will be two negotiating pillars um, on trade, um, on trade and on security. Um, so people um, here, so are, people expressing here are expressing concern that research and innovation could fall through the gap, through the gap uh, between, uh, those, between two those two pillars. Um, um, and can you tell and us, can you tell therefore, do you therefore, think, do you the, think the political will can be found to fix this? And do you think, where do you think the hopes and the, the, real, hope is, the real hope is uh, for finding, uh, for finding that, political will. that political will? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, look, political will is uh, uh, something which is very difficult to find. Uh, and also political will depends on the circumstances that might happen that we don't even see at this moment. But I think on the, at this moment, on both sides, and at least what I have seen on the EU side, there is a will to address all the issues which are related to something which is mutual, mutually beneficial, where both sides have got significant interest. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, it depends uh, uh, a bit how this will process will uh, run. But, uh, at this moment, uh, I have uh, what I could see, what I could hear from my colleagues, uh, is that uh, all the issues can be discussed. However, the two issues are the most political, and they will be setting the scene. One issue is the trade, because trade will affect hugely economy of the EU member states and also UK. So the trade issues have to be treated as a priority. There's a second is where both sides have got a huge interest is uh, 
or a question of security and whatever relates to that. But there are a number of other issues, and uh, in, uh, for example, in aviation, uh, in uh, energy, uh, where you have to have uh, linkages which cannot be interrupted. And all those elements will be discussed. The question is whether they will be discussed before or during, in parallel, or after major issues will be uh, solved. So you could imagine that you've got an agreement on the major political issues, and then you come, okay, now we have to solve remaining outstanding problems because there are many. Uh, uh, I mean, the, again, the most rational approach would be to look where we could have a mutually benefiting relationships and what kind of arrangements. If this is a collaborative process, this would happen. <laughs> However, if there will be a bit of uh, tension on the major issues, probably this would, uh, the political will will concentrate on most political uh, or burning problems. And that's uh, how things may, uh, may go in a real life. Thank you very much. I think that will end our time together on the live link up. It's been really wonderful to join up with you, Brussels. Um, so from all, the, all our audience here and from, from me and the welcome team, thank you very much to Bruegel and thank you to all of you there. Au revoir. <laughs>So we're very pleased now to continue our discussion with um, four panelists who are very familiar with these issues and will be able to go into further detail and to respond to your questions. And we'll begin with um, Claire Moody, who was one of the participants in the exercise and who was until last year um, a member of the European Parliament. What was your constituency? The southwest of England. For the southwest of England. Um, and who played a very active part in the discussions. So Claire, for seven or eight minutes, could I give you the floor? Thank you, Michael. And um, I want to start by saying that it was both a privilege and a very interesting um, exercise to take, project to take part in. And it is also one that was very, very dear to my heart. I worked on the research programme when I was a member of the European Parliament. I had in my region, well, 
I still have in my region uh, a number of institutions that were heavily involved in and benefited hugely from the research program. And of course, all the citizens I represented also benefited enormously from the outcome of the research programs that have been involved. When it comes to the report and the agreement that we've pulled together, there are a few points that I just want to highlight. Firstly, I'm very glad that we are doing this launch event this week because it is enormously timely. We know now, which we didn't know, as Michael said earlier, when we were negotiating this, we do know now that the UK is leaving the European Union uh, at the end of this week. But we also know that's the beginning of a process of talks and negotiations that are going to go on. And exactly has been said is that this is going to be a detailed set of negotiations. But I have not heard enough yet around the fact that these negotiations have to include our research and science and innovation, collaboration and cooperation. So I'm pleased that we are now able to uh, highlight this issue and to raise this issue. Secondly, again, as has already been said, you know, the, going through this negotiation process and uh, to deliver an agreement absolutely highlighted the points that have been made in terms of the difficulties and you know, the money, the people, the regulatory issues, the data issues, all of these were issues that we deliberately explored to get to an agreement. And yes, these are difficult issues in however the future arrangement is framed. But what we also wanted to do through this and I think delivered in the outcome of this project is the fact that difficult though they may be, they are soluble and we can reach an agreement. And this is in itself a piece of work that I hope can be used by the negotiators, but it is also an example that can be used by the negotiators of how we can get through these difficult negotiations and this period too. So I hope we stand as that, uh, that example to others. Thirdly, I, as you can only imagine, have had countless meetings, negotiations, discussions, one-to-one, -one, large groups, etc., related to all things Brexit. Uh, more than I would ever have wanted to have had. But the reality is that the one set of people, the one group of people that I have worked with over the last years that have been most united in understanding the benefit of the common endeavour that we have achieved as you know, UK, European Union, has been this research, science and innovation community. There is a will and a drive within the community to build on the work that has been done through Horizon 2020,
but also very importantly through those kind of connected programs as well. And what I hope that this agreement and the related report can do too is also act as a kind of focal point and again a drive that we have to continue to you know, support that collaboration and cooperation beyond this you know, date of 31st of January and the event uh, of Brexit. Fourthly, and you'll be pleased to know, Michael, finally, <laughs> the, uh, there is also the European Union process that is going on. A lot of work has already been done on the Horizon Europe regulation. A lot of work is already agreed on the Horizon Europe regulation. The element of third country involvement clearly is still open. But there is a timeline associated with that agreement as well as with the Brexit negotiations. And again, what I hope this can do is be used in the EU27 as part of where we could get to, recognising that you know, the regulation is for all associated countries, but that at least there must be that space left in that regulation for all of us to work as effectively as possible in delivering for all of our citizens and understanding that the EU27's priority is obviously for the EU27 citizens, but that this is a mutual benefit where we get more than the sum of our parts if we collaborate and we cooperate. So in conclusion, please do read the agreement, please do read the associated report. I know, having been to a lot of these things, you pick up the document, you have the best of intentions, and then you know, other things happen. But uh, I urge you to, to look at it in detail. But also, to repeat the point that this is not a topic that is being talked about enough in terms of those future negotiations. So it is up to us to raise our voices and it is up to us to keep making the point that we not only want this agreement, but that actually, in my view, we need to have the arrangements made for all of our citizens. You know, we develop medicines, we develop climate change uh, opportunities, we develop societal change opportunities. All of the pillars identified in Horizon Europe are ones which we can develop and involve if we work together in the future. But we have to make our voices heard. So thank you to Bruegel, thank you to the Wellcome Trust. It's been a privilege to be part of this. And I hope we can build on the work that's been done. Thank, thank you. you very much indeed, Claire, and also for your contribution to the, to the exercise. I'd like now to give the floor to uh, Jean Dowding from who is also a member of the European Parliament and has worked uh, extensively uh, on related issues. Thank you. Um, firstly, I'm delighted to be here this morning, even though yesterday morning I didn't know that I would be here. And um, I'm sorry I'm not Philippe Lambert, who has got enormous expertise on the negotiating side in the European Parliament as co-leader of the Greens EFA group. My... Um, background since July last year as a new member of the European Parliament representing the northwest of England 
my involvement in this issue is I have been the shadow rapporteur for the Green Group on Horizon, um, on the Horizon file. And um, I just have to say, wow, I have learned such a lot. Um, I'm not a, a, an academic. And I, I just thought there were maybe some things that I could bring this, to this discussion from the perspective of what's going on in the... Um, in those negotiations that we haven't, you know, we haven't gone into detail about this morning. Um, but firstly, I just want to say this is such a huge contribution and congratulations, well done. I think this is a tremendous um, example of a, a model, um, a, a way forward, and let's just hope this does get taken up by those people who are going to be um, in the, the negotiations. Just to go back to the horizon file and the things that are being discussed there. Um, the Greens have, were in, instrumental in getting that commitment to a 35% of all horizon funding on climate-related research and innovation. And there's a lot of debate going on about what that means in practice. What is climate-relevant research? And so there's debate on that. There's a lot of debate still about the involvement of citizens, as Claire has said. Um, you know, for this to touch the European public at large, there has to be more effort put into uh, reaching out in the involvements in the structure of the programmes. And there's a lot of concern about that for, uh, across parties. And of course, very close to my heart is the role of research and innovation in the implementation of the European Green Deal or the Green New Deal, whether that's in Europe-wide or um, in the UK or wherever. So those are some of the other issues that are being discussed. Um, I should add, actually, that this is really timely for me because I actually produced my own very small report um, as a Northwest MEP, What's on the Horizon for UK Science Research and Innovation. Um, it's on my website as of uh, yesterday, uh, ginadowding.org.uk. It goes into nowhere near the, the depth um, that you have done, but what I was trying to flag up there was this issue of how do we get the public involved in this discussion? How do we make sure that our, the negotiators really understand the depth of feeling about the importance of collaboration for research and the importance of research and innovation in solving our global challenges? So that, you know, that wider debate. Um, but one of the things I think that um, one of the stumbling blocks about the UK's role as associate member, and we've been discussing the figures, this, or some of the figures have been discussed, is that with the six billion contribution, six billion pound involvement from the UK in the current uh, horizon, that's far larger than any other associate member to date. I think the next largest. Switzerland, or I can't remember, but we're talking any other associate member is around a billion, I think, not much more than a billion. And the UK's contribution um, has been six billion. So that does change that relationship of associate members with and their role in the um, future negotiations. And the other probably most political issue is, as has been said, um, 
you know, we're hoping for rationality, common sense, and a spirit of uh, cooperation in these negotiations. And let's face it, that we do know there is all those other controversials, controversial issues are going to be being discussed around the trade deal. What we desperately want not to happen is that research and innovation and any agreement becomes a bargaining chip in those other discussions. And that's, you know, obviously a danger. So that the UK is going to be looking at translating all its all the current EU legislation into UK legislation through an employment bill, environment bill, agriculture bill. This isn't going to be, the research and innovation is not going to be subject to a specific bill, but all those things are going to be happening. Those things will underpin the trade deal. And it all gets very complicated and messy. And what I think we all want to ensure is that research and innovation doesn't become embroiled in any of those, um, in any adver adversarial negotiation tricks, shall we say, or and become a bargaining chip. And um, I think Claire's last um, plea to you all, which I would echo, is you know, we, all, we all need to be pushing for a, an agreement that can continue that spirit of collaboration and all the huge benefits to both the EU and the UK. And I would say, as a politician, when we talk about we all, we need to involve our citizens more. So, you know, my small report was really about trying to engage the public and people working in universities, not just the leaders in, in the uh, academic field, to be involved, to understand the absolute importance of research and innovation and the future agreement that we will have from the UK side the benefits across Europe to both part to all parties, and um, so I will take that. You know, even though my formal role ends on Friday, I will be doing what I can back in my region in the northwest with our five centres of excellence, including Manchester University, Liverpool, and Lancaster, to push this agenda. So, thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you. I'll give the floor now to André Sapir, a senior fellow here at Bruegel for seven or eight minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks for leading this, uh, leading this project. Uh, thanks for the, uh, the outcome and thanks for all the, the discussion we had, uh, we had already this, uh, this morning. Uh, I, I just want to look at two issues that have already obviously been, uh, been discussed and maybe try to add a small, uh, a small dimension. Uh, the, two, uh, the two facets that we have been discussing uh, throughout this morning are the desirability and the feasibility. I don't think there is much, I'm, a, I'm an economist, I'm a researcher, I've been involved in science and innovation research policies and also as a scientist. Uh, I don't think there is any point uh, much belaboring the point of the desirability, uh, especially in, uh, in this audience. Uh, one can talk about competitiveness, one can talk about the climate uh, challenges, in whatever dimension uh, that we are looking of, or not just economies, of our societies, uh, certainly research and innovation uh, is crucial both to, to our past and to our future. 
this is so obvious uh, that I don't want to use much of the time, the short time that is allotted to me to, uh, to, uh, to go about. So desirability, uh, obvious. Uh, obvious. And that you know, there is a community out there, out here and out there, uh, that is giving those points to politicians. It's needed. But it's being it's being done because it's such an you know such an obvious uh, obvious matter. So I think we can concentrate on the feasibility. Now, uh, feasibility it seems to me uh, there are also two dimensions. One is let's say of a technical nature. Okay, and uh, any uh, you know any anybody who has been involved in negotiations uh, knows that. There are lots of technical work uh, behind it, and but we have lots of good technicians uh, again on on both sides of the uh, of the channel. So I'm not doubting that the technical matters, uh, some of which are obviously presented in in the report, and I think the report makes a very useful contribution on you know highlighting some of the matters. Okay. I think those can be also resolved. We have the capability from a technical viewpoint to deal. So the whole thing comes down to politics, right? I mean, that was, that was the message of, uh, of Yaroslav that I could not uh, endorse more. So let me say two or three things about the, uh, the politics. One is to repeat uh, what uh, I think was perhaps, if I understood properly uh, Yaroslav's point, uh, that one cannot obviously uh, separate the discussion on uh, this aspect, however fundamental it is, uh, science and, and innovation, research and innovation, one cannot from a political viewpoint, from a negotiating viewpoint, uh, for future relationship, a future partnership, one cannot obviously dissociate it from the broader matter. And uh, I, I could not agree more with Yaroslav when he said that in the end it's a question of spirit. How do we approach? Are we approaching this in, as a matter of trust? And uh, how, you know, this is really the, 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 the issue. You know, what is the mindset uh, of those who are negotiating? And I think it was very useful that Yaroslav reminded us that he said, well, it's not his councils that are dealing with this. This has gone to in a sense, a higher level, and this is trivial, and this is, in a sense, good. Ultimately, it's the leaders, uh, because it's such an important relationship, right? For all kinds of reasons, not just uh, research. Research is just one of the many, many facets of all of this. So, yes, so if it's the leaders, what kind of views do the leaders on both sides have, and where is it they want this future relationship uh, to go? So. You know, yes, there are a number of, uh, of points. There's the issue of the budget. Uh, there's the issue of regulation. And all those are extremely well uh, detailed and explained in the report. And I think, indeed, very useful for the future negotiators. But in a sense, this is for the negotiators, the sexual negotiators. doesn't say anything about the leaders. Right? This report, in a sense, yes, it gives you know, the importance. But what kind of framework do the leaders have? Now, I just want to pick one point, which has not been directly uh, addressed, but uh, Yaroslav did 
uh, address it in some manner. And I, I, it struck me as, a, I think, a very important point, but I want to broaden it a little bit. This is the issue about associated countries. Andrew, you'll be happy. Uh, we are talking about the associated country. You have, you know, have written so much and contributed so much to all of these issues. Now, I think what is very interesting from a political viewpoint is that obviously the UK is not just any associated country, assuming that the UK will become an associated country. It's not just any, right? It's not just, you know, number 15 or 21 or whatever in the associated list of countries. It's a very different country. And it's a very different country, I would say, for two reasons. I mean, you and others uh, may add a number of others. One is that it's a departing country, right? The only country uh, that is leaving the EU. It's going to be a former EU country, as an associate country, that has all kinds of uh, dimensions that I don't need to, uh, to expand upon, but it's also the largest uh, of all of those countries. Uh, it's large in terms of population. It's certainly the largest by far in terms of the size of its economy. So in that viewpoint, it's, it has all kinds of dimensions. And you said, Yaroslav, uh, well, you know, and you, you, you were talking there about the process. Right? You were explaining, I think, in a very interesting manner, the voting. And you were explaining, you have your little machine on the side, but you, we are never, or almost never doing formal voting. Okay? You are computing sort of coalitions, things of that nature. Right? But most of this is being done in an informal manner, as you said, you know, during coffee breaks, evening, things like that. This is where agreements are being made. As we know, I mean, this has been the business of Brussels, right? Doing those kind of things. This is the beauty, uh, the beauty of it. Um, but with the UK outside of the formal, okay, it's not a member of the EU, it's not in the formal voting, but the UK being added in the other countries that are associated, that are in the corridors that are discussing and things, there are all kinds of uh, issues that, that, that come. And the, the in relationship to that, the last point that I want to make, which I think has not been mentioned, is the process on the future of Europe. Because we, at this point in time, we are not just starting the relationship, the partnership relationship between the UK and the EU. The EU is also launching its process about itself, the future of Europe. And itself, not just itself inward, but itself in relationship, because the future of Europe is not just looking at one's navel, it's also looking at Europe in a context, in a regional and in a global context. And this, in this regional context, obviously, this association, uh, the UK, all of this plays a, a very, very major role. So I would say impossible also to dissociate this discussion from the other discussion. Now, how all the pieces fit and how the pieces fit in the time frame that we are talking about, that is something that uh, I leave to much uh, wiser and smarter people. Thanks.
Thank you very much, uh, Andre, for opening up the discussion and setting it in a much wider context. Well, we've formally come to the end of the morning's proceedings, but I hope that the Bruegel will allow us maybe to erode, or if I might say, eat into the lunch period um, by 10 or 15 minutes in order to take questions that, because of the shortness of time, we may group together. So who would like to pose a question, please? Would you identify yourselves, please? Uh, thank you very much. I'm Andrew D D Duff, who uh, I was in the Parliament for quite a number of years and represented, amongst other places, Cambridge. So I have a very strong interest in, in this matter. I also follow the Brexit saga very, very closely, too closely, actually. Um, the problem is that the uh, an agreement on uh, research is not going to be part of a classical FTA. And so I strongly re recommend that science scientists uh, push to have a separate agreement discrete from the FTA negotiations. Uh, perhaps the FTA Yes, and negotiations are going to go quite well as ideology turns to pragmatism in the course of the next 12 months. It's quite possible that we will get an agreement, but it will not include British participation in the next research and development programs of the EU. I would... Uh, cling on to the political de uh, declaration, which, despite its change under the uh, new, new, new prime minister, we were able to ensure that the paragraphs on research and de de development are still in there. Um, uh, and the best of luck to everyone. Thank you very much, Andrew. We've taken note of those points, and we may come back to them after a few more questions. Gunther. Sorry, I just wanted to add perhaps one point quickly to Andre's points, why the UK is different. I mean, the UK is also different as an association country in this context because, of course, of its universities. I mean, it, it, it still hosts um, several of the world's leading universities and several of the top European universities. And, and so it seems to me the interest on the European side to have a close association um, on research with the United Kingdom is actually far bigger than in many other areas because of the quality of the universities. Um, so, so that's a very practical point. Perhaps one uh, uh, point uh, to Yaroslav, um, uh, your, your um, uh, intervention. I mean, I think one, uh, one point I think which you pointed out rightly is the spirit of cooperation that was in, in our negotiation. And I, I think we could really see it when, we, when, when our scientists on the both sides were sitting on separate side. We always had to tell them, by the way, you are now on different sides of the negotiation, right? Because they were so much thinking, what is happening? We really want to, uh, want to work together. And I think it's, it's important to understand that for us, this exercise was, in a sense, a reality check. And we learned that, well, actually, there are things that are much beyond pure research and beyond um, 
pure collaboration that we would li all like to see as researchers. And just to give you one example, and you mentioned the regulatory um, issues, the regulatory divergence. Well, in science and research, there is a lot of regulatory questions that are key. I mean, data, you mentioned the data um, issue, but it's also issues such as animal welfare in clinical tests, right? I mean, this is, I mean, who's going to decide on those and how will we um, agree if there's different views on the two sides of the channel on animal welfare in, in, in such, uh, such clinical, uh, clinical university medical tests? I mean, these are huge issues that are there, and uh, I think what this exercise helped us to understand is really how complex um, such a negotiation is. Even if you are really willing to achieve something, it's not going to be easy at all to come to an agreement. Thank you. Thanks for those reminders, Guntram. There's someone at the back who's been waiting to pose a question for some time. Could you just introduce yourself briefly, please? You're right. I'm Paolo Sospiro, University of Florence, and uh, I'm an economist. Uh, well, I, I just, uh, in the last three years, I, I tried, I mean, to understand what is happening with uh, Brexit. But as far, as far as I can see, it is very difficult to find an agreement when uh, you are diverging, I mean, in terms of interest and in terms of, uh, let's say, uh, perspective. So, uh, such as uh, I completely agree with the, with the point that uh, maybe the European, the EU is highly interested, I mean, to get an agreement about uh, research and innovation. But on the other hand, probably, I mean, the UK is not interested on getting, I mean, an agreement in which uh, she has to, uh, it has to pay, I mean, uh, such an amount of money, which is, uh, what is, six billions or something like this? And uh, Generally speaking, the whole, so, uh, let's say, amount of money that should have to pay the UK, it is about 13 billions to be in the EU. So almost half of the of the money to be in the only in the, uh, let's say, in, in one program. So the idea, it is that, in terms of cost of benefit analysis, it seems very difficult. I mean, to find uh, a way to to get a point, at least at the beginning. Maybe, I mean, the next five years, I mean, maybe, but at the beginning, it seems that uh, divorcing, I mean, uh, why to get back at the same condition when uh, you can get better? I don't know, I mean, this, this seems, the, the, let's say, the, the point. Thank you, if I might just clarify, I think both in our exercise and in the real world, the assumption is that uh, in the future, financing not only for Britain, but for other associated countries, and perhaps even for member states, would be more based on a kind of pay-as-you-go model in our exercise accompanied by a compensatory mechanism than the GDP share uh, that has been used until now. And this figure of six billion is not a net figure. Um, I mean, the assumption is that in the future, the UK or other uh, non-member states um, will be just about even in terms of what they've contributed and what they get back. So it's not six billion to be contributed net. We just have a time for one or two final questions before I give the floor back to the panel very briefly for closing remarks. Yes. 
Um, <clears throat> thanks. Matt Hind here from National Grid. Um, I guess my question is to British colleagues. Um, there's a widespread agreement that research and development is something that we should cooperate on. There are no benefits here to divergence. There are no benefits to splitting our research relationships. But people who think that aren't in charge of this negotiation. So I guess my question is, have you engaged with the, uh, the people who are in charge of this, the David Frosts and the Dominic Cummings? Uh, because they're the ones who are going to unblock this if it's possible to unblock. Thank you. Uh, so the question whether we are engaging with the, the, the real world actors, come back to that. And a final question at the back of the room, please. Uh, my name is Damiani from APRE, the Italian Agency from, for the Promotion of European Research. <clears throat> uh, in my previous life, I've had experience uh, negotiating several, uh, as a commission official. Um, oh, I should first of all disclose that I was part of this exercise as a member of the group of experts on the European side. Uh, as a, In my past, as a commission official, I've negotiated several science and technology agreements and several framework program association agreements. Based on that experience, I think that um, schematically, one, yes, it would be quite difficult, I believe, to foresee a science and technology agreement or a Horizon Europe association agreement without a hook in a general agreement. Uh, but whether or not there is that sort of hook, uh, I think that there will not be, uh, we will not be allowed to have uh, an association agreement unless there is an overall agreement uh, already achieved between the two sides. Um, what is important, because Horizon Europe will begin on the 1st of January next year, the calls are likely to be launched already before the end of this year, at least in anticipation, uh, if previous experience is, is any indication. Um, I think that it will be important that based on the principle of uh, there is no agreement until everything is agreed, that negotiations do begin on an association agreement while the general negotiations uh, take part. I think that this is something that uh, it is achievable and uh, with uh, due pressure on the parties, uh, it is something that it would be important uh, to get started, so that when there is a, a general agreement in place, hopefully before the end of the year, then immediately the specific association agreement to Horizon Europe can enter into force very rapidly. Thanks very much, Paul. I could just perhaps answer you and the previous uh, question very briefly to say we have had purely informal contacts with um, officials uh, on both sides of the channel, and the report will be presented uh, both to the Commission and other EU institutions and to the British authorities. On the, uh, through these informal contacts, I have gathered, but cannot put my hand in the fire to swear, that the first calls under Horizon uh, Europe 
will not be uh, before the end of the year, but actually will be quite late in 2021. Um, I've been speaking with officials directly concerned in the last few days who have told me that this is likely to be the case, but I can't swear to that um, independently. Um, that being said, I'd like to give the floor now for a maximum of two minutes to each of our panelists to sum up. Um, you've had a number of questions. Please feel free to answer whichever of them you, you choose. Um, and uh, the floor is first yours, Yaroslav. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, because there are no British audience anymore, uh, at least uh, there's a smaller one, uh, I can uh, take a bigger risk and to say a bit more uh, what I really think about it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, this is a political process. And you've got political will if you've got a constituencies pressing for it. So you've got universities, you've got research centers pressing for it, and they want to have uh, a solution for it. However, politicians are under pressure from various sides. And they, it's a multiple aims that they have. For example, uh, yesterday I have read that uh, British business wants to have a clear, crystal clear uh, confirmation that uh, the relationship with the third countries are still governed by the EU agreements. So they want to have a crystal clear that this is going to happen at least for this year. Well, there is a, a constituency, and the government is reacting to constituency. The researchers, research institutions, are saying exactly the same. We have been benefiting from uh, Horizon 2020. We want to benefit from a next one. I, but then politicians uh, are under different pressures, and they've got also different aims in mind. They look not only at the research, but they look also at the importance uh, and the competition between research centers. And then uh, they would say, why money should go to uh, British if they go to the uh, Maltese or to Greek, not to say French, German? And as you know, German uh, institutes were equally to British, more or less the same level of... Uh, and then you've got many other things, including uh, if there is a research and there is a money, there is an outcome. Why not to have an outcome in Europe, 2027? Why we need to get engaged? In, and then especially if it's not a very collaborative process. If there is a politics which is very ugly, then you think, well, Maybe people, instead of learning English, could learn German, French, or some other languages. There are good universities in countries offering uh, studies in these languages. So if you are going to in an ugly area of non-cooperation, 